What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as always by Drew Lerner. And we'll do the normal discussion of sports TV ratings this week, the NCAA tournament. We'll talk a little bit about NBA rights deals. We'll talk a little bit about the World Baseball Classic that, as of this taping, will conclude tonight. Uh, if you have not already, please subscribe again to the Sports Media Watch podcast feed. If you were subscribed under the previous iteration of the podcast, you do have to subscribe again to the feed. So let's just get started. A very strong start to the NCAA tournament, the most watched first round on record. Now, of course, the first four was down, but that doesn't really count, right? The first four. Uh, So the first round of the tournament, uh, most watched on record. Obviously, that comes with the caveat of out of home viewing. We know that any multi-year high of any significance. So a multi-year high that's like since 2019, you don't really need to mention out of home. But if you're going to say most watched on record, then you've got to mention out of home. Uh, and we know that out of home viewing is a factor, was not tracked prior to 2020. Uh, so was this really the most watched first round on record? Probably not. But as far as Nielsen is concerned, yes, it was. A very strong start to those numbers. Uh, fairly Dickinson's win over Purdue, just the second 16 over a one. Over 4 million viewers on uh, on Friday night. That was actually more than the uh, the UMBC Virginia game back in 2019. Uh, that was pre-out of home, so that definitely comes with that caveat. But uh, as, as far as the numbers we have, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson's win was bigger than UMBC's. Their loss in the second round, though, was actually lower than the UMBC game. UMBC versus Kansas State, pre-out of home in 2018, 4.6 million viewers on True TV. In the exact same time slot, exact same network, exact same day, Fairleigh Dickinson's loss to FAU was way lower, actually, 2.9 million. So uh, Fairleigh Dickinson was a bigger draw than UMBC for their win over the number one. For their loss to the number nine, they were a significantly less uh, lesser draw. Some of that is FAU really doesn't inspire much of any emotion at all. Kansas State is at least a familiar team, uh, but FAU certainly is not. Uh, as far as the CBS games, the most watched game of the tournament so far, as you would expect, that's your CBS late window on Sunday leading into 60 minutes. Michigan State Marquette, 10.9 million viewers, down only 3% from Michigan State Duke last year. That was the Mike Tuszewski swan song year. Uh, that was 11.2 million. This game, 10.9 million. That's not bad. I mean, you're swapping out you know, Coach K and Duke for Marquette. And you're you're keeping the numbers pretty much stable. So if you're CBS, you're thrilled with that number. Uh, that was the Andrew Catalan game. Catalan got the Fairleigh Dickinson games, and he got the late Sunday game on CBS. He is not a second round or second weekend announcer yet. He, Steve Lapis, and Jamie Erdahl are not in the uh, second round or second week rotation yet. My suspicion is that he's 
going to get that second week next year. Uh, I don't know if Lapis and Erdahl will be with them or if they'll just put him alongside Ian Eagle's current partner, Jim Sparkle. But I think that next season you'll see Andrew Catalan based on his performance this past week. I think you'll see him in the second week. There were a lot of good announcers that could be moved up to that second week. Lisa Byington uh, obviously has improved a great deal. Her She's did a great job this past weekend, uh, and she's noticeably improved. Uh, uh, not that she was bad, but she's noticeably better than she was last year. Uh, Sparoditas, you know, I, I remember watching Sparoditas when he was 24 years old calling NBA playoff games with the late Steve Snapper Jones on NBA TV. And Round Ball Rock was the theme song. People forgot NBA TV used Round Ball Rock for a few years. So this is a long time ago. Uh, and uh, he was a wonderkind. Ultimately, Sparrow's had a great career, but anytime you're a wonderkind, you know, at 24, people expect that by the time you're 43 or 44, uh, that you'll be, you know, at a different place. Ian Eagle didn't break through to a number one team until his 50s. There's no shame in it, but certainly Sparrow, uh, you know, it's about time for Sparrow to make a bigger leap than he's made so far. I do wonder if he regrets not taking that Lakers job. I don't really know what happened there, but uh, he was in the running to be the voice of the Lakers. And I think that would have been a big, big deal. I mean, the Lakers, you know, they, the Lakers have been a, a G League team since Kobe Torres Achilles about 10 years ago, but it's still the Lakers. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that would have been a, a great role for him. Maybe Sparrow gets it. Maybe Byington gets it. But I think Andrew Catalan is the leader in the clubhouse. And, you know, maybe Brad Nessler gets it. Brad Nessler, who was 20 years ago on the NBA Finals, just so badly miscast. But he is a good basketball announcer. He's just not a good pro basketball announcer. And maybe he gets it. I mean, he is the voice of the SEC and maybe soon the Big Ten on CBS. Uh, but uh, who knows? My thought is Catalan's the leader. I'm not going to be shocked if they go in another direction, but... Uh, Catalan to me showed uh, showed some things over the weekend. Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of deserving announcers, uh, as you mentioned, John. You know, I think CBS will probably go with the, the easy move of you know elevating Ian, of course, to the to the main broadcast team, and then pairing whoever their choice is with uh, Spinarkle. That just seems to be what would kind of shake up the the broadcast teams the least um maybe keep a lot of the continuity with most of the teams um because i think overall it, it has been great this year um i, I will say i actually uh, attended both the uh, the friday and the sunday games in in greensboro north carolina so my, my perspective on the on the tournament this year is limited to the thursday and the and the saturday games so i did miss actually catalan's calls but from what I saw on social media and all of that, he did get a lot of praise. Uh, I would like to dive in a little bit more to the ratings, John. Um, you did mention how how the FDU game kind of compared to UMBC a few years ago. I'd like to kind of take a broader look at, at what these numbers look like compared to previous years. I know that, you know, obviously the PR teams are going to juice up the ratings numbers as much as possible. I did see mentioned that digital numbers were included this year in some of those um, press releases. Is Has that been typical for the tournament in, in previous years, counting those March Madness Live numbers? I'm assuming those are included in the Nielsen numbers because there was no mention of Adobe Analytics. And to my knowledge, the ads on March Madness Live are the same as they are on TV. So I'm thinking that the March Madness Live mention is just simply that's factored in. 
Um, I, you know, but then again, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, it's not like these are actual press releases. These are little tiny images posted to Twitter, right? So uh, who, who who even knows? Um, I'm assuming, I mean, just the, the straight Nielsen numbers certainly seem to back up the idea that this tournament is doing well. Um, you know, uh, let's see, most of the windows have been maybe a little bit more mixed than the press releases would make you think. But for the most part, it seems like everything is is up and doing well. Um, you know, I, I think uh, with a tournament like this, where there's so many combined windows, it's really hard to just look at a spreadsheet and be able to tell, honest to God. Um, but Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of wanted to get into the nitty gritty just for a second here of how, how these windows are actually measured, because you have so many concurrent games in the first and second day. Um, are they measuring it by network? Are they measuring it per window? Like how, how does all of that work? Explain to well, our listeners. So with the tournament, it's different than the average event. This is mm. not 9 million viewers per game. That's not what's happening. It's a combined audience across windows. So uh, for example, let's take a look at the, uh, the window where uh, uh, Fairly Dickinson beat Purdue, right? That window grossed 11.23 million viewers across CBS, True TV, TBS, and TNT. So that is the third game of the day window, the first prime time window across those four networks. That's Fairly Dickinson Purdue at 4.4 million, Kentucky Providence at 3.9 million, Miami Drake at 2.1 million, and Gonzaga uh, Grand Canyon at 879,000, bringing up the rear, right? Three of those four game windows were up from the exact same game window last year. Last year, it was Cal State Fullerton Duke at 3.5, Chattanooga, Illinois at 3.5, uh, Iowa State LSU at 2.9, and Wright State Arizona at 684, right? So you have uh, three of those four windows were up. The Iowa State LSU game last year did better than the Miami Drake game this year on TBS, uh, and the window overall was up. So on uh, the combined window is what that average is for. I should point out, because people don't realize this, the first four games are added together. The first four is one TV window by this measure. So the first four had 5.4 million viewers this year because you're adding the four games together. No individual game had more than 1.7 million. Uh, if you look at the individual numbers individually, the average is going to be substantially lower, as you can imagine. But, you know, a lot of these games are going up against each other, so that makes sense. Uh, there's going to be some cannibalization there. And since the tournament used to be just one window with four games in it regionally, uh, there was no disadvantage in continuing to do it that way when they went to the four-network setup. Uh, whereas with the NBA, you wouldn't want to do that because you've always been doing this individually. That's how you've been selling your advertising. Uh, so with the tournament, they have the ability to just uh, continue to add those numbers up. Ultimately, you know, is that a little bit somewhat misleading? Maybe, you know, I mean, but whatever, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's all fudging when it comes to Nielsen. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, that seems to me to be a, a reasonable way to measure it, considering you know, yeah. how many games are going on at the same time. I will say um, it might be interesting this next weekend what the ratings look like, considering how many of the traditional powers, the Blue Bloods, are no longer in the tournament, right? Yeah. We have Duke eliminated, Kentucky eliminated, no Kansas. Yeah. Obviously, UNC didn't even make the tournament. Yep. Indiana's out. Those are all huge 
traditional college basketball powers that are no longer in the tournament, you could probably say the biggest draw now is UCLA, Gonzaga, right? There's really not too many of those traditional schools left in the tournament. So how do you think that's going to impact the ratings for this upcoming weekend? Yeah, I mean, one, I don't really think people care about Pac-12 teams, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe gymnastics with UCLA, but that's, that's about it. I mean, UCLA basketball is not a substantially big draw. So, you know, I mean, honest to God, I almost, I mean, I almost feel like Gonzaga might be an equivalent draw to UCLA. Maybe that's crazy, but um, to me, I think, yeah, it's going to get, it's going to be different that you might not see as many press releases or Twitter images uh, in the second week, as you saw in the first week, because you don't have the, the superstar teams. Alabama is not a superstar in basketball. No one's used to Alabama being here. Uh, and their story is not particularly positive because of the issues that they're having. Uh, Houston is, you know, I mean, you gotta be 50, 60 years old to understand that Houston was once a, a power in this sport. Um, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I don't know. And the other thing too is, yeah, Princeton is there. So you do have that underdog story. You probably wanted Fairleigh Dickinson to advance over FAU. FAU is still there and Florida State isn't even, I mean, what is going on there? Florida State didn't even make the tournament. Uh, Florida didn't make the tournament and Florida Atlantic is in the second week. Oh my goodness. Uh, you still have UConn. That UConn-Arkansas game could do well. I think the Gonzaga-UCLA game will do very well. You still have Michigan State, Kansas State. That's a real matchup of real teams. You have, uh, you know, and then that Friday slate is pretty rough. You know, San Diego State, Alabama, Miami, Houston. Uh, you do have Princeton-Creighton. That could do well. Xavier-Texas. You know, these are kind of schools that are just there. They're not necessarily bad draws, but they're a little bit like a Denver Nuggets might be in the NBA, where, you know, you're not, it's not the end of the world if they make it. But, you know, they're not the attractive teams. Frankly, the Nuggets aren't the best comparison. ABC does not want the Nuggets in the finals. Uh, maybe the better comparison there is like, uh, I don't know, uh, Dallas or something. But, um, you know, they're, they're not the superstar teams. I think the Final Four, the Elite Eight, you're probably going to see numbers that are, are, are lower than we typically see, not necessarily disastrous. Yeah, you know, and I'm kind of surprised at some of the windows they put these games in. Um, I'm seeing Xavier, Texas is scheduled for that late night, 9.45 p.m. tip-off on Friday night. That, to me, is probably the best matchup on Friday, and it's getting arguably the, the worst TV window. Um, may, maybe maybe not because, uh, you know, it is the last game, and people are able to kind of tune in, settle in for, for a nightcap there. But um, to me, it, it would make more sense to put that in the in the prime time seven fifteen slot, and then Miami Houston in that late slot. Even though you know Miami is a, an East Coast team, uh, you have anything else for uh, the tournament? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the women's side. Uh, yeah. One point four six million for Iowa versus Georgia on Sunday on EBC. That is a great number for the women's tournament. You know, it, it's such an interesting thing, the way people think about TV ratings, because they're like, oh, well, the men's tournament had 10.9 million for Michigan State Marquette. Yeah, it did. We know the men's tournament is way more popular than the women's tournament, but the women's tournament still did really well on Sunday. ABC, 1.46 million. You're not complaining about that. For a first round game, 
you know, so actually that was the second round game. Uh, I think they had over a million for three of their four windows. Is that right? Let me see. One, two. Well, no, uh, the, the two first round windows on Saturday actually were both under uh, under 700,000, actually. But the two windows on Sunday, the two second round windows, one and three o'clock, uh, both over a million, including 1.1 million for South Carolina USF. I mean, I don't even I didn't even watch the game. I'm assuming South Carolina won easily, probably by 30 or so points. Not, not actually easily. Uh, USF kept that pretty close for the first wow. half before uh, South Carolina pulled away. But yeah, they, they did end up winning by like 30 points. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but you know, again, I mean, no one would expect that to be even a halfway decent game. So, um, over a million for that, one point four six million for Georgia Iowa. Those are numbers that you can't complain about. And the women's tournament ultimately is, you know, going up against the men's tournament. So it's 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 not even like these are free available windows. Uh, I think uh, again, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. No one is saying that the women's tournament is equivalent to the men's in popularity or should be equivalent in terms of rights fees. But obviously, $40 million per year as part of a deal that includes water polo is a bit absurd. Uh, this tournament can generate uh, certainly nine figures on its own and will. And, and there's no doubt about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just the tonnage of games that happen during the women's tournament. I mean, that's valuable in and of itself for, for ESPN. I would be curious to see the Monday numbers when they come out because I, I still do think that there is an argument to to put more of these games in their own windows, not going up against the men's tournament. I do think there is more audience for this tournament if they yeah. weren't going up directly against the men. But um, that we'll, we'll have to wait and see until tomorrow, most likely for those numbers. Interesting about the women's tournament, we've had two number one seeds knocked out. Yeah. already for the first time in quite a while with indiana going down and um well who was the other one seed stanford. That lost? stanford stanford correct yeah that might uh those those are two well at least stanford is a pretty traditional oh, yeah. uh, power for the women's so who knows how that will affect ratings but it's good to see some parody in the women's game i think yeah i mean obviously you know people got so mad when you would say stuff like UConn's dominance was bad for the game, it was self-evident that UConn's dominance was bad for the game. Uh, women's college basketball is infinitely healthier now than it was when Brianna Stewart and company were just running through everybody. Uh, and, and, and looking back, the whole debate was just asinine. It was obvious. You don't want one team winning four years in a row, not the way that they were. People always bring up the Jordan thing. If Jordan and the Bulls were blowing people out every time, it would have been a problem. But if you, you know, and, and you're not old enough, but if you're old enough to remember watching Jordan and the Bulls, there was never a guarantee. Yeah, you might have thought Michael could pull it out. A lot of those series were very close. Utah should have won in 98. They could have won in 97. Phoenix should have won in 93. You know, I mean, it was never, hey, you know, Jordan and the Bulls versus the North Charleston Logators. Like it was with UConn. They made a lot of teams look like the North Charleston Logators. So uh, the, the sport is in a much healthier position now. UConn, frankly, I don't even know that UConn is the biggest draw. I'm kind of tempted to think South Carolina might be. And, uh, you know, that's a much better place for the sport to be than it was when Brianna Stewart was at UConn. Certainly. Well, we will be watching for, for those storylines as well. All right. Um, let's move on to the World Baseball Classic. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely been getting its fair share of publicity on Twitter, you could say. Yeah. Personally, I haven't watched a single pitch of it, but it seems like there's been a lot of really exciting endings to these yeah, games. Yeah, 
let's um let's let's kind of put in context how is the world baseball classic traditionally done on television uh has it been improving this year and is is this like a a growth property for for fox well the world baseball classic always does better than you think because it's so easy to forget that it exists you kind of forget what the numbers look like so if you go back uh, i guess it was six years ago the final of the world baseball classic was the first time the u.s made it 3.1 3.1 million viewers across MLB Network, ESPN2, and ESPN Deportes. That wasn't on an, uh, like, none of those networks are networks you want to be on, right? And it was 3.1 million, including 2.3 million on MLB Network alone. And Spanish language coverage on ESPN2 and Deportes, 761,000. That's tremendous. Most regular season baseball games are not getting that kind of number. I think, obviously, tonight's game is on FS1. You don't want to be on FS1. Nobody wants to be on FS1. But they're on FS1, so be it. On Fox, I don't really know how well this game could do. Certainly, you would think if the game had 3.1 million in 2017 with pretty much no media attention, that it would do a lot better on Fox. Certainly, could we be talking about 3.6, 3.7, 4 million? I don't know, but it seems like there's energy behind this. There's been a lot of talk about uh, this is a meaningless tournament. It's only meaningless because baseball hasn't done a good job of taking advantage of what's there. The energy level is obvious. People really care about this, and they care about it a hell of a lot more than they care about any of the 162 games of the regular season in baseball. There's no reason for this to be going on in spring training. We had a Winter World Cup. They have winter baseball all over the world. We have places in this country that are plenty warm during the wintertime. This should be maybe a January tournament, something that goes on midweek around the NFL. We know from the World Cup that just because the NFL is on doesn't mean you can't still get some audience in other uh, uh, parts of the week other than Sunday. So this should be maybe a December tournament or a January tournament, but it needs to be far enough away from the season that injuries are not going to kill the the teams that these players are on. Now, Edwin Diaz's injury, that's a season-long injury no matter what. But Altuve's out eight to 10 weeks. If this is in January, he's probably good to come back for opening day, right? So they got to make sure this is not that close to the season. And having it in March when you have the tournament going on, the tournament's not as big a draw as the NFL, but it's so associated with March. I think the tournament is more associated with March than the NFL playoffs is with January, right? So, you know, the, the reality of the matter is, it, it's almost more like you're being suffocated by the tournament than if you were a few months earlier. Uh, and uh, having it in March, it just feels like this little spring training thing. Uh, there's clearly interest and excitement about this, and you, you've got to take advantage of it. I agree, and I, I think just generally speaking, international competition in sport always has that just inherent intrigue from fans. You know, you have the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup in golf. You have international soccer windows, at least in the U.S., always do very well with the, yeah. with the men's and women's national team um, compared to, you know, what a domestic league like the MLS can get. Yeah. So there, there's always intrigue for, for international competitions. And I, I think baseball leaning into that, putting it in a better calendar spot would really, would really kind of help grow this event. And you can see it in the crowds. Like yeah. the crowd is so engaged. That is not something you really ever see in yeah. the MLB until, you know, October, right there. Yeah. So it's it's good to have another baseball event on the calendar like that that can really uh, drum up excitement. Yeah, and I think if you're baseball, the idea of getting rid of it, you know, the Keith Olbermann idea, uh, boy, Keith. Hmm. 
Yeah, there was a time when I would swear by Keith Olbermann, man. There was a, I was watching Countdown every night. I, I was watching Countdown when he was still doing the Keeping Tab segment when they had an inexplicable segment on Countdown where he would talk about celebrity gossip. It's, it's a weird show. Oh, man. Uh, hopefully one of these <laughs> days, hopefully one of these days we can get the actual Keith Olbermann back. But anyway, uh, maybe this is the actual Keith. But yeah. uh, the reality of the matter is, um, you know, uh, his critique, I think, is short-sighted. And I think the only reason this is meaningless is because baseball has not maximized it yet. Baseball is a big sport all over the world. They don't do the PR that the NBA does. The NBA is always talking about basketball is big everywhere. Well, baseball is big everywhere. Baseball is big all over the world. But baseball doesn't have maybe even a single marketing person in, in the entire league. Is Am I, am I correct? Do they have a single employee that, that does marketing? Because, doesn't seem like it. Yeah, this is this is a big event. You can feel it. The crowds are excited. And it's in March. It's in spring training. Come on. This needs to be something that becomes a cornerstone of, 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 of the baseball calendar, in my view. Every Not even every four years. Maybe every three, because you don't want it too quickly. And it was every three, right? It was supposed to be every three years. I think every three years is perfect. You want it to happen frequently, but you don't want it to be so frequent that people kind of take it for granted. Yeah, I, I kind of see an argument where putting it during spring training kind of is a good lead in to the season, gets people excited. Um, but I agree with kind of your point where there's plenty of warm places in January to do this. It's not a time where people are generally thinking about baseball, um, avoids the the injury problem. So, yeah. yeah, that to me, that seems like a great time. I think there's also an argument to put put it in the middle of the freaking season, you know? Yeah. <laughs> why, why not have it in June? Well, because that's when Major League Baseball is supposed to be on, and you yeah. are not going to sacrifice those lazy summer days where you get most of your people in attendance. Uh -huh. Yeah. As a fan, I think I would prefer it to uh, to break up the monotony of 162 games. But yeah, yeah that's that's just pie-in-the-sky dreaming for me. Yeah, I think I, I would not do that. Uh, you, that's the heart of your season. Baseball, yeah. July, August, there's nothing else on. That's so much of their revenue is from there being nothing else going on. So you can't you can't sacrifice that. What a business model that is. Yeah. All right, let's let's do some quick hitters, John. Uh, reports coming out of ESPN. Uh, Disney is set to lay off about 7000 of their employees. Obviously, a, a large chunk of that may come from ESPN. What do you have to say about ESPN making more cuts? Do you think there's any talent that um, could be affected by this as well? Well, you know, uh, Andrew Marchand in his article mentioned Chris Fowler. Fowler wants more money in his next deal. He's already done the little thing that they do. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that this came from his camp, the report in front office sports about Fox wanting, uh, having interest in him. Uh, certainly, if you're Fox, no offense to Rob Stone, but you you know that would be not bad to have Fowler there, given his involvement in College Game Day, if he was hosting their studio show. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, ESPN has exactly as much loyalty as the Trump administration, so it doesn't really matter what you've done there. Uh, if it's time to go, it's time to go. You know, they brought Kenny Mayne in and said, "Hey, Kenny, we're going to cut your salary by five hundred percent. You willing to stick around, right?" And he said, "No." Uh, you know, look what they did to Rachel Nichols. Look what they do to anybody. Uh, there's, there's no loyalty there. Good luck, right? Yeah, that that 500% is not really much of an exaggeration either. <laughs> and, you know, the way they, they've they treated Chris Fowler in the past year with, you know, I think especially with the Australian Open of yeah. tennis, 
not sending their crews to Australia this year. Um, I think that kind of probably rubbed Chris the wrong way. And it might've been one of the final straws for, for him and ESPN. And I'm quite uh, sure that him uh, making his annoyance known on the air was a final straw for them too. Yeah. So definitely uh, some reading of the tea leaves there in, in that situation. All right, let's uh let's do NBA rights deals, John. That's going to be probably one of the biggest sports media stories in the yep. next year. Um, give me the latest on that. Yeah, so there was a report in the information last week that the NBA wants to triple its rights fee in its next deal, and is getting some pushback from some of the potential bidders like Amazon. Uh, I don't really make a big deal out of this, one way or the other. Yes, the NBA wants more money, and the networks don't want to pay that amount of money. We'll see what happens. Uh, the NFL wanted a lot more from Disney than it got, but it still got more from Disney, didn't it? And for the NBA, uh, I'm still pretty confident that they're going to double or triple their rights fee. Uh, I, I don't think that there's really any question about that. But, you know, I've been wrong before, right? But, I mean, I think I feel like if a league wants a certain amount of money, they will find a way to get it, right? Uh, you know, Major League Baseball took less money from ESPN in its deal, and it's still making more money in its new deal than it was in the previous one. And Major League Baseball, as a national television property, doesn't have what the NBA has. So uh, I think... You know, even with the ratings down, people make a big deal about the NBA's ratings being down. The NBA's ratings have been down before, and they still got more money. Granted, it was a small increase. Uh, you know, can they double or triple in this environment? I think as long as they have people who are bidding, as long as they have interest from Amazon and Apple, they can find the money to make that happen. That's my thought. So uh, I don't think there's any particular concern that I would have about about any of that it's just again the typical reporting that you're going to get in the run-up to a rights deal all right last one john xfl ratings you know our favorite topic on this podcast uh pretty putrid this week obviously going up against a, a ton of other sports properties yeah. but what were the numbers there and uh is this anything to read into for the xfl so this was a milestone week for the XFL. It has now lasted for as many weeks as the previous XFL, and this coming week is the real milestone, week six. The previous XFL didn't get to week six, so fingers crossed, right? You can never really guarantee anything in this world. But uh, week five was another milestone for the XFL, the least watched yet, uh, the I think maybe the three or four smallest audiences yet. Uh, ESPN Thursday night, that was originally an FX window. Just 256,000 viewers for Houston, Seattle. ESPN 2 Sunday night, just 246 for Arlington, San Antonio. And then the lowest point, Saturday, 10 o'clock for Orlando, Vegas, 234,000 on FX. Uh, there was only one game above 300,000. That was DC, St. Louis. The previous XFL did last five weeks, but it started a little bit earlier. So it never got to the tournament. Uh, it didn't even get to Selection Sunday. And it was obvious from the schedule, they had an FS2 game scheduled at one point in the XFL that, that was never played, that they were going to get to some really low points once the tournament started. Tournament never happened, XFL didn't continue, so we never got to see that. Now we're seeing just how low the numbers can go, and we probably haven't seen the lowest point yet. Very important that this week they get an ABC game. ABC has a game leading into the Sweet 16 on the women's side on Saturday. That was originally an ESPN game. Uh, being on ABC should help um, at least get them a, a reasonably respectful, a respectable number. Uh, also, being at 1 o'clock, a lot of people are complaining about the times. Who wants to watch football that starts at 1030? This is why the NFL got rid of that Monday Night Football doubleheader. Football after 10 o'clock, you know how long a football game is? 
right? I mean, yeah, in college, maybe Pac-12 after dark, whatever. But certainly pro football is designed to be played in the afternoon. It's an afternoon sport. And if you're going to do prime time, you can do prime time, but you can't do late night, right? So uh, being on at one o'clock will be a big deal this week. But, uh, you know, this is not surprising. This is where the XFL was going to go in the previous iteration opposite the NCAA tournament. Uh, but this coming week, uh, and in fact, I think for the rest of the season, every game will start at a reasonable time, except I guess Vegas, Seattle, April 23rd is currently set for nine o'clock. Maybe they move that up about an hour because uh, it's clear that the time slots are, are a factor, not the factor, but a factor. All right. Thank you for that, John. Uh, why don't you close us out and uh, tell us what we got in store for next week? Yeah, I have uh, a guest lined up for next week, uh, prominent in the soccer broadcasting community. Uh, I'm not going to say who it is because you just don't want to, you know, the last time with, with, with Bill Pito, we had some technical problems, couldn't bring him on when we wanted to. So, but we do have a guest lined up for next week. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're uh, looking forward to that. And again, if you have not already, please resubscribe to the Sports Media Watch podcast feed. Uh, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, yada, yada, yada. You know where to find podcasts and you can find this one anywhere you get your other podcasts. But I will go ahead and uh, call this one. This should be a pretty short episode. Like I said, when we were retooling, I want to keep this short and sweet. I don't think anybody wants to be listening to a podcast for four and a half hours. So uh, we're going to call it a day and see you next week. Hope you enjoyed it. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.